1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts and my name is Dr. Miranda Melcher and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Ethan Sy Levine about his book titled Rape by the Numbers, producing and contesting scientific knowledge about sexual violence, published in 2021 by Rutgers University Press. This is a really interesting book to me on a number of different levels. Um, First off, it looks at statistics of rape and sexual violence and how those are produced, making some really important arguments about biases in science, about how knowledge is created um, and how we then use that knowledge for other things. And it also explores how we study subjects that can be really challenging for example in this case rape um, and what that impact has in the academy how we might deal with that as researchers Um, and so really this book does a lot of different things that I find very interesting and I think the listeners will as well so Ethan I'm really excited to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book.
1: Yes thanks so much for having me.
0: Could you start us off please by introducing yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, my background is kind of split 50 50 between academic work, so, you know, research, teaching, standard stuff like that, uh, where my area has consistently been interpersonal violence and anti violence advocacy. So, for yikes yeah, at this point, almost 20 years, um, I've been involved in primarily sexual and domestic violence work directly supporting survivors. And I myself am also a survivor of. Adolescent and adult sexual assault and dating violence. And throughout kind of all of those domains, questions around who gets to tell the story, who is considered relevant to the issue of sexual assault, whose voices make it into the conversation have been kind of running themes. And once I started doing more academic work on this, I also became increasingly aware of and interested in the power that researchers have in shaping those stories. And I'll give just one quick example now. So within the United States, where I have lived my entire life, um, anti-rape activism has been happening literally for centuries, right? So there are records of Indigenous people doing activist work against sexual violence by white colonists against Indigenous women. But it took until the late 1980s when we had a game-changing statistic the uh one in four women have experienced completed or attempted rape figure that came from mary Koss and her colleague study for rape to become a national issue right to gain recognition as a widespread problem and yeah that was really my way in that led to the book
0: Mm. thank you for explaining that um i think it really is indicative of the number of different things the book touches on kind of the different strands of your background that kind of brought it all together um so I want to start as the book does with the kind of science-y bit. And I'm glad you've you've already introduced us to kind of the key statistic. Um, that of course is not as straightforward as it initially sounds. And that's true as you show in the book for not just for that particular statistic and study, but really for this whole kind of area. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about the social mechanisms that influence scientists in studying rape.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is also a concept that uh, was really mind blowing to me and I had no connection to until I was in grad school. Um, I had the uh, fortune of being uh, paired with a mentor who had done a lot of work on the social construction of knowledge that really got me thinking about questions like this. So in terms of social mechanisms influencing research in this area, right, it's so I think about this as all of the kind of direct and indirect connections that researchers have while we engage in our work. Right. Um, I it would not be possible to give an exhaustive list here, but just some examples. There is the question of what ideas about sexual violence we've been exposed to and where those have come from. Right. So, for example, a lot of scholars will start their careers in this area focused on rape myths, right? Or perceptions about how sex and dating works that they've encountered in their personal lives or that they've encountered in the disciplines that they're teaching in, right? What is the dominant literature in psychology right now, right? What did they absorb in the media that they grew up consuming? So there's just the kind of basic ideas that we're exposed to. Another really important factor that was not as obvious to me when I started the project, but certainly through uh, completing grad school and being full-time in academia for a bit, I totally get now. um, There are pressures that come with the job, that can be a huge issue, right? So if scholars are interested in large-scale projects that require funding, or if they are at, let's say, top-tier universities where you're expected to bring in, um, you know, impressive amounts of funding, then the priorities of those funders and potential concerns about the scope of citations and public reception to your work are going to wind up being a huge factor. Um, So one quick example for that, one of the folks that I spoke with was really interested in looking at the causes of sexual violence as her main area of research and became an expert on alcohol and sexual violence, because the best funding streams that she could find actually came from a source focused on substance use, right? Um, And so her entire career wound up kind of reshaped by the availability of funding. She did incredible work, but I don't think her career would have taken that path if it wasn't for that funding structure that then led her, um, you know, to become both an alcohol expert and a sexual violence expert.
0: Hmm, That's a really interesting example um, that I think Many of us in academia probably understand quite viscerally, but maybe don't then apply that visceral understanding to how it impacts our work. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a useful thing to reflect about. And we're, we've only just started the conversation, so who knows how many other nuggets we're going to unearth um, in this. Um, but sort of staying on this part of your book for now, um, can you also tell us about precasting?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: What impact that has on what we've discussed so
1: far? Right, yeah. So, uh, precasting, which is a concept I introduced early on in the book, um, is something I think of as basically deciding from the outset of a study of any research project who is capable of enacting what role or what status, right? So if we're studying rape, if we're studying sexual assault, making decisions in advance about who is capable of perpetrating and who is capable of being victimized, right? And I want to be really clear here. So I am, that, that is distinct from making decisions about who to include in your study, right? So for example, we might have a study of perpetrators that focuses entirely on cisgender men who have committed acts of sexual violence, right? That on its own, deciding that's my study population would not qualify as precasting, right? But if I were to decide, I want to, I want to study perpetrators, right? I want to find out about the people who commit acts of sexual violence. And I mean that in a general sense, but I only think to sample cisgender men, right? That would be precasting, right? If I only think to sample heterosexual folks about the issue of sexual violence, because as far as I'm concerned, those are the same, right? That would be precasting, Hmm, that makes sense. And
0: again, an idea of, oh, yeah, we're aware of these biases, but then hang on a second. Are they being, wh- where do we interrogate whether they're being carried through in our work? Right.
1: Uh, yeah. And I, I think this happens quite a lot in research. And I also, you know I don't think that we're typically aware of this, right? Like you're, you're saying this is an issue of biases that can just be built into our work. And again, right, uh, given the cultural scenarios around sexual violence that we're exposed to, um, we don't see this quite as often now. Um, but it, Certainly in a lot of uh, studies of, for example, uh, victim survivors of rape in the uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, I read through a lot of literature where the abstract and the title spoke about rape survivors as a general population. And it wouldn't be until I got to the methods section that I would learn that that research involved an all-female sample, right? That the recruitment was entirely focused on cisgender women, and that was the sample they wound up with. and. I don't think this was the intention of the researchers in that work, but what that wound up doing, right, was setting this boundary that only cisgender women and girls were capable of qualifying as victims or survivors.
0: Mm. Yeah, which has some pretty obvious problematic implications um, and things that we will then do without information. Yeah. So... Uh, as much as there are some fabulous details throughout the book, I'm going to try not to get too bogged down in them, so that we can do a good overview um, of everything in the book. So I'll move on to kind of the next stage, I suppose, which is the really intensive survey of the literature and the various subfields, um, and analysing what research has been done, what are some of the things we can find from that um, in terms of patterns and biases and all sorts of things, and One thing I personally was being not particularly familiar with this literature myself, I found really interesting was kind of in some ways how little the different studies talk to each other, um, given that they seem to be coming from like different subfields or different bigger fields. And so I thought that was interesting, like that the fact that you looked at all of them together was a huge contribution in and of itself just to like have the conversation in one place. Um, but of course, you didn't just put them all together, you also analyzed them and thought a lot about it. So given that expertise, I'm wondering if you can maybe um, introduce us to what you think might be some of the most impactful and maybe some of the most surprising patterns that you found in examining the, the field of sexual violence research, and especially in the um, subfield of quantifying sexual violence.
1: Yes. um, Yeah. So that that quantifying sexual violence was kind of my most exciting, you know, kind of closest to my heart chapter. Um, To your point, too, though, I uh, I'll share that I originally imagined structuring this in a really different way when I first set out on this project. Yes. So my thought had been that I would be, you know, telling the story of the history of research on sexual violence in the U.S. and Canada I was starting this project in 2015. Um, 1975 happened to be a big year of the field. We got two really important books uh, coming out that year, and so I thought, all right, I'll take this four decades. And I had expected to tell a story about changes over time, where you know each main chapter would be one decade. You know, so I'd have right like your 75 to 84, 85 to 94, and so on. And when I started looking really closely at the history of this literature, it became clear to me that there were these subfields that didn't really talk to each other. And that when we wanna ask different questions about rape, we often ask different people. And that was so wild to me and also just, a little humbling um, as someone who had been in the field a long time and didn't know that, right? <laughs> so, So yeah, I, um, so that was really the first surprise of um, exactly what you were saying, that these fields don't talk to each other as much as I would hope. Um, one of the biggest ways that that stood out to me was actually in sampling. Um, so in a broader sense, when, again, and, and this is again, you know, the United States and Canada over this time period, when we have sought to quantify rape, We have usually turned to the general population. A lot of that research comes from state institutions and sometimes also research in college population. So that one in four women uh, figure from 1987, that was with about, uh, it was a study of about 6,000 college students. In causal research, So looking to understand why sexual violence happens, we are way more likely to see college students asked and particularly psychology students probably intro. I do not know if this is true or standard in schools outside of the United States, but here (laughs) it's really common practice for students who are taking intro to psychology to have to be participants in professor's research to make it through that class. So for example, I had to participate in four hours worth um, of different studies when I took intro to psychology a bunch of years ago. And so a lot of our research on the causes of rape comes from that. And then finally, when we look at the aftermath, right, what happens after sexual assault has occurred, a lot of that research has been focused on help seeking populations. right? So we sample from hospitals, we sample from uh, health clinics, from social work and therapy offering institutions. So, yeah, that was that was one of the uh, just wildest things to me So <laughs> there was that. Um, another pattern that really stood out to me, and, I, and we might get into some of this later on, uh, was just seeing where there was and wasn't controversy and who was involved. So, yeah, in quantitative research. Right. So that one in four women figure comes out in 1987. It is game changing. You know, sexual violence transforms very rapidly from something that's perceived as a relatively small problem to an epidemic and you see a huge amount of media attention to the issue and then within a couple of years there's a huge backlash and you start seeing you know a lot of public controversy around one in four women but not really a lot of controversy among academics yeah yeah um it, this, this feels like a bit of a stretch, um, but I mean, it, it, it reminds me of some of what I've read about climate change, right? Uh, you know, in that there are public debates about climate change that don't actually reflect the conversation among climate scientists. So, you know, a question like, right. So like a question such as, is climate change controversial is really going to depend on what population you're talking about. Um, yeah, and uh, in sexual violence research, that is also the case, right? So one in four women, hugely publicly controversial figure, but not among researchers. Um, If we look at causal research on sexual violence, I found examples of controversies among scientists and controversy that was not really among scientists, right? So so that was another major, major trend. Mm, Very
0: interesting and suggesting that um, the idea of different academics not necessarily talking to each other is probably even a wider issue. Right. Which is a little bit concerning, given the topic. (laughs) Right, absolutely. Um, I'm interested in the idea that you were originally thinking of structuring this sort of by decade. um, Because in this part of the book, you do obviously do some amount of kind of tracing over time. Um, And I found this really interesting uh, because some things seem to have changed a lot over time and some things seem to have changed less. Uh, which is always fascinating. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about kind of how much changed over time, what did, what didn't, um, when it comes to especially this idea of kind of causation research, and even just how the research was conducted.
1: Yeah, uh, that is actually one of the fields where I saw the most changes over time. Yeah, so so that's, that's a helpful uh, <laughs> narrowing for me. Yeah, so if we look at research on the causes of sexual violence, yeah, you know, in the earlier years that I looked at, uh, there was, and I'd say, right, so you're mid-70s to maybe late, mid-late 80s, there was a fair amount of research focused on the causes of perpetration, right? So looking at people who do or don't commit acts of sexual violence, why that does or doesn't happen. Uh, That research drifts off a bit. It still happens, but it's far less standard. We've really moved much more towards focusing on what causes individuals to be victimized or not victimized, But, um, but the methods have changed a lot too. So in the realm of research on perpetration, this was super wild to me. So we used to see more, uh, I'm trying to figure out the most, so penal plethysmography was a method that we saw a lot earlier on in the field. Um, So penal plethysmography is a method that involves basically measuring the presence or absence of erections in uh, male typical bodies and, that is a piece of technology um, that has been really highly controversial within the United States in a range of domains, right? So in research and in criminal legal system contexts. Um, But yeah, so early on, we see some research on perpetration that uses that as a tool, right? In which cisgender men are shown images of consensual or non-consensual sexual encounters, and researchers are measuring their physical responses to that as a mm. way to, yes, that that just doesn't happen anymore, right? <laughs> but That's it's
0: probably an improvement.
1: Yes, yes, and that is a technology that has really lost a lot of credibility, but it tells you something really important, right? This idea that um, a term you saw a lot early on was deviant sexual arousal, right? So uh, trying to understand what it is uh, that makes a male typical body respond uh, to an idea. But, you know, of course, there, there's so much, going on in there, you, you can't know what part of an image someone is or isn't responding to, right? It's really, it's, it's really not a great use of technology. Um, it doesn't tell us very much about who does and doesn't perpetrate sexual violence and why. Over time, that field starts focusing more on cultural factors, um, ideas about sex and dating, right? Um, but still in a way that is very heterosexual. Almost all, if not all, research that I found on the causes looked at cisgender men as the perpetrators of sexual violence. On the other side, um, so looking at efforts to explain uh, kind of the causes of victimization, why certain folks or communities do or don't experience sexual violence, um, definitely a range uh, of shifts. The idea of rape myths enters the field in the early 80s in a big way. And so, you know, you see that, you know, kind of pop up in various ways. Um, I I think that another really important pattern there, um, at least again on the victimization explaining side, is that over time, there has been a shift from individual kind of psychological explanations to more attention towards cultural factors, right? So for example, if we think back to the alcohol example an individual focused kind of approach to that might be looking at individual drinking patterns and risk of sexual violence. Whereas we might now also look at exposure to social spaces where there's a lot of alcohol, right? Or social spaces where there is an expectation of both alcohol and sexual activity and what that means and how folks navigate those spaces.
0: Mm. Mm, That that makes sense. I mean, obviously I have my own biases, but that seems like a, an improvement in research technique as compared to what was done before. But I, of course, have my own biases, just like everyone else doing research. So, OK, fair enough. Um, so in addition to this massive literature search um, and review and analysis, which shows many other things, by the way, than just the few that I've asked you about now for the listeners, there's so much more detail in the book um we've just touched on a few things here so just to let you know there's more um but aside from that as if that wasn't enough you also interview a whole bunch of people um about these sorts of topics about like the research in the field and um perhaps it won't be a massive surprise to listeners that interviewees in addition to you and i so far in this conversation have not always been super happy with The state of research on these topics. Um, But I was particularly interested in what interviewees had to say about the state of the research that specifically focuses on the aftermath of sexual violence. Because so far we've been talking about numbers and causation and things like that. Um, So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about kind of interviewees' perception um, on this part of the research.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that was something that really stood out to me as well, right? So we have this quantifying causal research and aftermath research. The first two areas were where we saw way more controversy, um, again, around stats and around what ideas are acceptable in terms of accounting for sexual violence. Um, The aftermath area was where I saw the most frustration, by far right you know among and i I interviewed just about 30 folks from a range of disciplines at a range of career stages and just very consistently people express frustration specifically with aftermath work um in ways that i think do get back to some of those social mechanisms right so the complaint that i heard most often was we keep doing the same thing over and over again and it's just not getting us anywhere right so Uh, More specifically than that, yeah, uh, I heard this a lot in relation, for example, to research on uh, criminal legal system outcomes of sexual violence. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get the quote exactly right, um, but there was one person who who was just very great and upfront and said something to the effect of, you know, I don't need another million dollar National Institute of Justice study telling me that the criminal justice system is shitty. Like, I know that. But, yes, but, and, you know, she specifically mentions that grant funding institution, which is a major funder of sexual violence research, right? And I think that was one of the areas that came up that a lot of the big funding streams tend to come from the same federal bodies and tend to be focused on the same institutions, right? So we do so much work looking at those outcomes. And then there are also quite a lot of folks that I spoke with. Who are not really interested in prioritizing those outcomes right that don't necessarily want to study sexual violence as a criminal justice issue right um, that want to look at broader impacts of community and you know, on communities want to look at different versions of justice that don't involve law enforcement and courts but so much of the money is there right um, and even on the individual outcome side right there was one person who shared with me um like they they had such good ways of phrasing this, and I'm not going to be able to do them justice off the top. That's of my okay. Head. They're in
0: the book. <laughs> Listeners can go read yes, the book right. for the direct quote. They're,
1: thank you. Yes, they are in the book. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Um, who? Said that she, so she's this was someone who has been in the field for decades, and she shared that you know, so she's been doing reviews, you know, peer review for decades of journal articles, and she feels like she's still seeing the same aftermath questions. Uh, This was someone who was in psychology; a lot of what she reviews is more individual focused, and she said basically, uh, from her perspective, we're continuing to see research where the question boils down to: Is sexual violence harmful to individuals, and how is it harmful? Right, so looking at the same psychological impacts for example and she she said something to the effect of you know that's about as innovative as another geographic study demonstrating whether or not the world is round you know that <laughs> to her, again we know this and i think yeah you know i have you know, done such a deep dive into this literature i've spoken to some folks who have done those studies and i don't think this has anything to do with a lack of innovative ideas or an interest in broadening the field but i think that there are are sometimes constraints around, right, so where the money is. And, you know, if the money is look at sentencing and conviction, and you're at a school where you need money, then you study sentencing and conviction. And I think that in an area as weighted and politicized as sexual violence, that there are also a lot of times concerns around what isn't isn't publishable. And that seemed to have a huge effect, particularly in terms of folks, um, we might say kind of playing it safe in terms of study design and what outcomes they look at.
0: Unfortunately, both of those things make a lot of sense. But also would definitely be frustrating um, when asked about the state of the literature. Um, Yeah. So I kind of want to move now from the um, analysis of the research and kind of what is done and what's not done and how that's all biased and impacted, et cetera, um, to the part of the book where you sort of turn your focus to the people doing the research, to conducting these studies. Um, and one of the things that I was particularly interested in, and of course, this is definitely mildly navel gazing as a fellow academic, with many of our listeners also being in academia, um, but I think something that a lot of us are often interested in is sort of how people come to study a particular topic. And you trace in the book, all sorts of different paths and reasons and um, trajectories that bring people to study this particular topic of rape and sexual violence. So I was wondering if you could maybe trace out what some of these pathways
1: and reasons are? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, talk about biases. This was one of the areas where I was most surprised and really had to confront some of my own assumptions in that I had imagined that my pathway would be a lot more standard than it was. (laughs) And uh, that was true for a few folks I interviewed. So as as part of my process, I tried to be as transparent as possible with folks. If people wanted to see my interview questions in advance, I sent those. If they wanted my IRB approval in advance, I sent that. And I welcome folks to ask me questions about my findings after the interview. Right. You know, so and that was, you know, my offer to everyone. Like, I'll tell you anything you want about how this is going after our conversation, just because, you know, I didn't want my findings to date to shape our individual conversations. And, yeah, the thing folks asked about most often was that was, you know, what's bringing other people into the field? And I think that was in part because of, you know, concerns about, you know, finding enough scholars and mentoring and, you know, finding collaborators. But yeah, so. I had expected that the standard pathway into research on rape would be already being committed to the issue in some way. Right, because it's such a heavy subject. I mean, as someone who studies war, right, this is I'm sure something that comes up for you, right. That this is not a particularly easy path, right. It's a, it's again a highly politicized field. You will face challenges from within and outside, and there's just a lot of emotional work to to, to kind of suffer through here at, at times. And so I had figured, right, people would have some sort of initial commitment, whether that was personal exposure to sexual violence or being close to someone with that exposure or having connections to activism. And that absolutely was true for some folks. Um, I want to also be clear about that. I didn't ask anyone about their personal history um, of victimization or perpetration. Um, A few folks, yeah, but a few folks did share um, either, uh, you know, being assaulted and unhappy with the aftermath of that and wanting to do research to build a better response. Right. So a few people had things like that or had been involved in campus advocacy around sexual assault as undergrads and just kind of kept going with it and never looked back, but a good number of people kind of fell into it through other ways. Um, so a couple folks that I spoke with were just real into challenging research questions, right? You know, so, uh, Right. So they might encounter, um, you know, they might see a controversy and kind of want to jump in. Right. You know, there are. Uh, so, for example, I, this is not one of the controversies where people said that, but this is a type of example. You know, So research around uh, communication and sexual violence tends to draw a lot of criticism within the field and sometimes without uh, research looking at evolution and sexual violence tends to draw a lot of criticism both within and out. Some folks see a controversy like that and are just really motivated to get in there and figure out what's happening, you know, or will realize that there's some new funky technology or statistical method that they want to try out. And this is a really good field to do that work in. And just so yeah, there's like a methods question or wanting to just intellectually challenge themselves or get into get into a controversy. Um, And. There were a few people, um, and this was really heartening to me as someone who mentors, who just wound up paired with, you know, who wound up being an RA, right? When they were master's or PhD students with someone who studies this or was connected to someone in the field and just developed such a good working relationship that this became their home. Oh, right. That happens right, for those of us who mentor. (laughs) Lovely. It really, really was. Every time I heard a story like that, I had a little moment when the interview was over of just like, this is great. This is the thing I can maybe do. Mm.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Those are some very interesting pathways. Um, I think I was most surprised by the kind of mentoring one, though in hindsight, that seems odd because of course academia literally comes from that. That was sort of how the field initially was until very recently. Um yeah but I think it was really interesting to kind of trace it in this field in particular. So um, I, I found that part of the book really interesting and it doesn't stop there um, because you also kind of continue to talk to um, other researchers in the field and find out more about how they sort of study the topic, not just what their research is, but how they engage with it and how they think about it and, um, And all these things. And one of them, of course, you've kind of already mentioned, which is the idea that some people um, come into this field because of personal experiences. Um, And sometimes people are very upfront about saying that, and sometimes they are not. Um, And of course, that's a journey and a process and not really a kind of black and white type thing. And so what did you find when you kind of looked at that idea of how researchers or writers do and don't engage with their personal histories or do and don't include that when studying this topic.
1: Yeah, so this is such a huge issue, right? And again, the broader politics surrounding sexual violence research really come into play here, right? So this is an area of work that is largely considered political. I am of the mind that research is, is political in general, but, but folks who don't believe that will, you know, don't agree with me about that, will say, well, well, rape is political, right? It's, it's contested, it obviously, as this farther reach. Um, it's also a morally weighted field. It's a feminized field. Um, and so no matter what someone's, you know, gender identity or lived experience, is you will deal with, you know, kind of the consequences of working in a feminized area. And then, right, um, that, that personal connection piece. So, uh, something I've learned in, in grad school and then through doing this project and beyond. Um, so, researchers who study sexuality or anything connected with sexuality, and certainly folks who study uh, sexual violence, tend to get a lot of attention to our personal lives and characteristics anyway. Um, so, uh, this was something that, that came up a lot in IRB. My advisor actually coached me, or I guess practiced with me on this when I was going through IRB for this proposal of like, what are you going to do if they ask about whether you've been raped during your IRB hearing? You know, because that happens, you know, um, that uh, I, I had a friend in grad school who was studying um, the language that she used was uh, non-offending pedophiles, um, so adults who described themselves as having sexual desire for children, but had never had sexual contact with children. And her IRB process involved a lot of scrutiny on her own background. And she told me that she felt like they basically wanted her to either confess to having assaulted children or reveal that she had been assaulted by a child as a child. And like so there is, there was a, there was a broad awareness uh, that we are kind of always under scrutiny in that way. And, when I spoke with folks for this book, you know, again, some shared their experiences and some had done so in writing. Um, People also spoke about how uh, readers tended to sometimes make assumptions about our personal histories, right? So yeah, you know, the, the, or just, or, you know, reviewers, for example, right? So there was one, uh, one, one woman who was a psychologist who had, she shared an experience with me of going to, a grant writing workshop where everyone had to come in with a paragraph about a project they were hoping to get funded. Her project was looking at, uh, you know, sexual assault among adolescents. She was, you know, an adult's either PhD level or soon to be PhD level researcher. And she told me that in that setting, this person asked her questions like, why do women go to bars anyway? And really tried to, it seemed like he was baiting her to reveal a, a kind of personal victimization history um, in a project that had nothing to do with bars, had nothing to do with her, you know, was was about a like, distinct case that was not related to her own experience. That's... Uh, Yes. helpful or professional, right. really? Yes, yeah. Um, and then uh, one other person who shared with me that she was a survivor, but she once met a fellow academic who was talking about her work, and that fellow academic had said something along the lines of, "Like, well, you know, obviously, you of course have never been raped," and continued talking. And the reason okay. this other scholar—right—the smaller... <laughs> reason All this right. other scholar—interesting smaller... in that... assumption. <laughs> the whole reason was that she didn't say it in her own book. Uh, yeah, the idea of like, if you were, you'd write it down. So all that's to say, yeah, this is a very roundabout answer to your question. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I, I think it is a kind of decision making for folks who are and are not survivors that weighs pretty heavily and you become pretty aware pretty quickly, especially for researchers in this area who are women or have any, you know, any marginalized status, gender or otherwise, right? That that scrutiny is just kind of there. Um, so, yeah, I uh, in my case, I agonized over this throughout the process um, and kept trying to get my advisor and my friends to make the decision for me. Um, and as one does, one does, you know, like you're taking on this giant project, and I just like, Yeah, um, everyone was very great. Um, It it had the same general response of, you know, I hear that those are really good concerns and uh, you have to decide this for yourself. And so um, what I wound up doing for my part was, uh, you know, connecting my own uh, personal history back to the research questions, right? Um, So as, and I'm sorry, there's some kind of construction, something happening outside right now. Um, But yeah, so, you know, I... I'm a trans masculine person. I came out as trans and started living as Ethan when I was 19. Um, I so what that means for me in relation to this. So I have been sexually assaulted while living as a girl, and I have been sexually assaulted while living as an openly trans man. Um, I've sought care in both of those lived identities, and I've also like moved in and out of the prioritized groups and with all the work i've done like i could write you four different totally valid rape prevalence surveys that would put me at anywhere from 0 to 3 you know lifetime rape experiences and so once i realized that that like i was such a good example of like, what i was trying to get at in here um that really gave me a way to bring it in in a way that i think Highlighted the importance of thinking about survivor experiences, but also felt like tied to the project enough in a way that, I don't know, felt a little bit safer and easier. If that's what worked, then great,
0: I think is really the answer. Um, But thank you for um, kind of explaining to us, not just kind of the experience in some sort of like, here it is, do with it what you will, but like the logic of how people think through these kinds of decisions. Um, And the kind of social context that prompts them. Um, And this is really important, because you the social, everything around us is obviously something we've already talked about with social mechanisms, influencing the study of this. Um, But there's also a positive aspect that you come to um, sort of two thirds of the way, I guess, through the book, around And you've actually just mentioned it, right? The idea of supervisors and friends and you're asking them like, wait, what do I do? Um, And this is sort of a, a mini example of what you talk about in the book of the social mechanisms that sustain scholarship in this field. So I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us about what some of that looks like.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, and this was one of the most gratifying parts of the project as well, Uh, you know, as someone in this field who wants to stay in this field. Yeah, so there were two things that really stood out. One of them was certainly mentoring Um, and, and, you know, mentoring is important in research and academia all the time. There is a ton of work on that. Uh, Mentoring is also an equity issue. Right. And there is a ton of work on that, you know, demonstrating that, uh, you know, folks who are uh, from marginalized backgrounds often have less access to adequate mentorship and guidance. But in this case, um, the, the reason that I, I focused on mentoring in a, as big a way as I did was that the scope of mentorship included a lot of those contextual factors, right? So, so right in that example, I was just sharing, I went to my advisor to talk about how to write about my own experiences or not, right? And the kind of personal and political dimensions of that decision. Um, When I was deciding what project to do, I had originally imagined doing a kind of less in-depth dive into different domains, like there were a bunch of different ways I thought that this originally might go. And before I decided to focus in on science, um, I had considered doing work that, at least in part, focused on these same questions, but among social services providers. And uh, my advisor sat down with me and talked about uh, some of the kind of mental health impacts that might have. Um, so, in my particular case, again, relevant to this part of the story, um, right? So, I've been in the field for a good long while now. Um, I started out as a volunteer and then kind of quasi-paid rape crisis counselor. And I actually got fired from my first position in that field when I came out as trans. You know, and very explicitly for that reason. And you know, this this was 2005, you know, I don't think that's as standard, but it was not a particularly surprising or controversial decision at that time. And yeah, and so my, my advisor, again, very kindly, you know, asked the question of, you know, do you want to talk to rape crisis advocates and folks who manage those programs about whether people of all genders can do the work? You know, do you feel like you want to, I mean, that's an important conversation to have, but how will that be for you? What will you need to build in? Is that where you want to focus your energy? And I hadn't thought about it that way, but I immediately knew the answer was no. Right. That I just, I didn't really feel um, like I wanted to take that on. And I also was very interested in the scientific piece, right? But this, you know, Figuring out what is healthy for you to do, Uh, you know, this is a field where because it is so weighted, and we are, you know, oftentimes I think kind of feeling against the world as folks who study this issue. uh, That um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of of controversy, and sometimes, I mean, frankly, cruelty among scholars who study sexual violence. And I think that a lot of the mentoring that I read about as well was, you know, folks guiding people through navigating all of that, you know, the, you know, if you are really interested in three or four ideas, again, like don't just think about what methods are you expert in, what resources, you know, financially and in terms of time do you have, but what will the kind of social and emotional impacts of this work be and letting that be part of the decision? Yeah. Um, okay, so that's one. <laughs> the other <laughs> the other really important mechanism. Uh, that sustains this that was so exciting to me uh, as an advocate was uh, just collective care work in the field um, and I argue in the book that collective care is actually a part of doing the scientific work of studying rape that it is so foundational um, that you know without that that a lot of this work just doesn't happen so we can't think of it as supplemental it is like sustaining necessary foundational um, I and I, I, this came up in so many interviews, right, where folks talked about how there were projects that were going to stop, but or, or like they would not have been able to complete, but they had friends or they had co-authors who would give them room to process how they were doing, who would kind of give them permission to feel what they were feeling in relation to the work, to change their role or move deadlines around, um... And just to really recognize their own humanity as people doing this work, yeah. And you know, in the advocacy world, that is just standard practice, right? Like, I I had my first lesson in self care again almost twenty years ago in my first rape crisis center volunteer training. I didn't have any conversations with anyone as a grad student about self care. Yeah, I'm. Right? What a concept. Yes, I know, right? You're, you're really discouraged from thinking about that, and that's true across the board. And also for folks who are studying sexual violence, studying war, studying addiction, right? And so, for this issue that was so standard in advocacy to not show up in higher ed was really jarring to me when I, you know, kind of transitioned into that world in a big way, and then. It was really amazing to learn that a lot of people have found ways to kind of bake that into their scientific process. And that's how they're able to generate work. Mm.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. I feel like we could have a whole discussion about how to do that effectively. But I will stay on track. I will stay on track. Um, And at the risk of sort of puncturing the bubble of uh, collective self-care, the issue obviously that you've just raised in terms of your personal experience um, is something that is a hot topic really and a contentious topic within the field and of course within society more broadly and this is the idea of gender identity um and how does this relate to discussions around sexual violence um which are often conceived of as being women's issues and specifically cis women's issues um and this is a obviously a huge debate within general society. But as you talk about in the book, also within research on rape and sexual violence, and particularly when we think about defining and quantifying these things. Um, so I'm wondering if you can, given how much we've already talked about the gap between discussions that happen in academia and discussions that happen in the wider world, um, could you map out for us what these tensions sort of look like in the academic community, in the scholarly work.
1: Yes, absolutely. So a lot of folks spoke about a perceived polarization in ways of studying rape and and absolutely like and to your point, particularly when it came to quantifying, right? So to prevalence research. So the perceived polls that folks spoke about, and no one put themselves on either poll, right? But, but the perceived polls that a lot of people shared um, were on one hand folks who think of rape as right, uh, as a women's issue, as a cisgender women's issue, who would make the argument that the real problem is cisgender men doing acts of harm against cisgender women. Rape is a subset of the larger problem of violence against women. And any attention to anything else is at best a distraction and at worst actually harmful right, to those women. So that's your one poll. And then on the other poll, uh, this idea, uh, you would have this idea that sexual violence has absolutely nothing to do with gender and we should make everything gender neutral and we should stop talking about men and women when we talk about sexual violence. So we have that perception. Um, Like with any binary, you know, any kind of sense of polarization, most folks, you know, said those seem to be the camps I'm not 100% in either of these camps. I don't know anyone who's 100% in either of these camps, but folks often had kind of a side, right? You know, where where they felt more comfortable. And really interestingly to me, everyone seemed to feel like they were outnumbered on that. So, you know, folks, right? Yes, and like that really surprised me um, and was, you know, just again, something I only knew because of these interviews. So yet yeah, when I spoke to folks who really wanted to you know so who understood sexual violence as something that can affect people of any gender but really wanted to prioritize cisgender women's experiences as like the main issue in the field those folks shared with me that they felt attacked they felt pushed around they felt really silenced they felt like no one was doing that kind of work anymore because there was this huge push for gender neutrality and when I spoke to folks who wanted a broader gender focus in their work, again, I heard basically the same thing, you know, folks saying that they were pushed around, that they were silenced, that there was no room to do the kind of work that they wanted because people only wanted to talk about this as a cis women's issue. So, you know, I, again, to, to your point before that people aren't talking to each other, right? Like, it's it, it felt very important that not only do we have those camps, but right, everyone feels isolated and outnumbered. And I, I think that part of the issue there is, you know, again the faulty logic of that kind of binary, right? This idea that either we talk about cis men's violence against cis women, or we take gender out of it altogether, right? Like, like those are two approaches, but they're not the only approaches, right? And I so something that I really push for in the book is that instead of thinking in terms of gender neutrality, and God, I feel this a lot around we. I will also keep us on track, but I feel this a lot in like contemporary debates around trans rights that, you know, there's this talk of like gender neutrality as erasing women, for example. Right. And that is not an argument I care for, but I can at least follow the logic of gender neutral seeming like it takes something away right of you know neutrality meaning that gender is unimportant so the language yeah the language that i came to use and that i really think does a better job here is thinking about inclusion or inclusivity instead of neutrality right so we can do work that recognizes that rape is an issue that affects people of all genders and we can have projects with priorities. We can even have a movement that has priorities, right, that has to kind of choose to focus on this population rather than another. We can center women's experiences in the work, um, but not in a way that, that does this other kind of erasure. Um,
0: yeah. All right. Well, so on that note of what we can do, um, given that you've written this book that looks at so many different things, some of which we've probably done more justice to than others, um, but we'll see. Um, what do you recommend? What What can we do to improve the study and research and design of research of sexual violence
1: and rape in the future? Yeah, so I think there are a few things. Um, I, I want more voices in the conversation, you know, in a big way, right? So something that I, I found... Across all of the decades and across a lot of the interviews, although we have seen some changes over time, um, a majority of work on rape has been focused on the individual, right? So individual outcomes, individual causal factors. And has really had a heteronormative bent to it, right? We very consistently look at straight cis men assaulting straight cis women as kind of the main area. So what that means is that we know a lot about that gender dynamic and sexual violence, and we know a lot about individual level outcomes um, you know, and, and causal factors not as much on the systemic, the institutional, the cultural side, not a lot about other gendered patterns. So in the field overall, I do think that there is a lot of room for broadening. Um, and that that means that, that that kind of broadening would have to happen at a range of levels, right? So not only in terms of what individual researchers are working on, but what journal editors are willing to kind of let through their door, right? What different funders are willing to support in their work, what. PhD advisors are willing to support, right? You know, the, because I'd also heard from folks, you know, studying uh, what are perceived of as like smaller communities or smaller issues being told that's not good enough. Like I'd love for some advisors to ease up on that. Um, At the same time though, you know, I, like, I don't think we need to stop looking at individual factors. We certainly shouldn't stop having work that focuses on, for example, cis women's experiences of violence, uh, but I would love for more uh, directness and transparency in study design and also in academic writing and presentations on that, right? So, you know, I spend a ton of time, you know, in this project looking at definitions and different ways of writing survey questions and how much that matters in terms of who screens in as a survivor or victim and who doesn't, right, Um who gets to be part of your story. Again, thinking about what sampling frames you're, you're looking at and who then doesn't get to be a part of the story you're telling in a project. And I would love for us to write more openly about the definitions that we're embracing with our work and the specific survey questions we're using, how we chose the sampling frames that we chose, you know, um, because I think that would allow for kind of more recognition of how varied this is, you know, and again, like thinking critically about who we're including and who we're not. Um, I do want to acknowledge that those suggestions make us more vulnerable potentially, right? You know, I I mean, presenting the definition of rape you're using in a publication means opening up to criticism from the editor and reviewers, and it might limit some of the publication outlets that are available to you, right? Speaking openly about decision-making Right, and how many decisions we make in designing, executing and writing about a study, all of those become kind of points of vulnerability. But I, I you know I, I would love to see you know kind of more of that and if we're dreaming big here, you know a kind of cultural shift towards thinking about that sort of scholarship as stronger, right? So scholarship that recognizes the human decision making and kind of the, Influences on our work, uh, what we are including and not including at various times, as a sign of kind of better, more rigorous research. Hmm.
0: Some very interesting suggestions, and of course, as a deep methods nerd, uh, the recommendation to yes. spend more time on methods. Um, yes, we've got at least at least one person going, yay! Always
1: um, spend more time on methods.
0: Yes. Yeah, and <laughs> there's yeah, we we love methods, um, and yes. there's no such thing as one perfect method, so explaining what you've done and why um, is important and also as an interviewer, fascinating. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, But speaking of methods, speaking of work and projects, um, as we come to the end of the interview, I really just have one question left which is that this book is now done. It is available for people to read, which is amazing. Um, is there anything about something you're currently working on that you would like listeners to know about what you're up to now that the book is done?
1: Wow. Uh, so yes, I have recently transitioned out, out of uh, full-time higher ed into a research role at an anti-violence organization, which is really exciting for me. Uh, so, yes. Um, and I'm now working in the anti-human trafficking field. So my current push and the current projects that I have are really looking at um, ways to build more survivor engagement in producing scholarship about violence. Right. Um, And I think it's pretty common for survivors, especially in the anti-trafficking field, to be asked to serve as consultants, for example, or to kind of share their story. Um, But thinking about survivors as members of study teams and as co-authors and co-presenters. So that's kind of the big overall push uh, in in my work right now. And a project that I'm hoping to begin uh, next year with survivor involvement also will involve looking at how uh, sexual violence, uh, domestic violence and human trafficking are kind of understood and addressed among practitioners Uh, throughout the United States, uh, kind of what people think each other's jobs look like and kind of where there is opportunity for collaboration and where folks kind of do and don't understand each other's perspectives well. Um, So, yeah, that's uh, what I have coming up. Well, that sounds very
0: exciting. Um, so thank you for telling us a little bit about it. Um, and while you are off digging into that role, uh, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled Rape by the Numbers, Producing and Contesting Scientific Knowledge About Sexual Violence, out last year in 2021 from Rutgers University Press. Ethan, Sai Levine, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Yes, thanks so much for having me.